You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. got a handout we're going to work off of today. So if we can start by passing that out, uh, it looks like this. Caleb, can you help JP? You guys can split that in half. If you didn't get one of these, it says Heidelberg Lord's Day 1 at the top. This is just going to be the reference for, for the whole sermon. It has a bunch of scripture citations on the back. We're going to be working off of this. So if you don't have one, will you raise your hand? Make sure my uh, wonderful attendants get you a handout. And then you can also take this home. There'll be some, some exhortations at the end that you could, you could be working off this as well. While they're passing that out, really briefly, my name's Scott. I am a pastoral resident here and uh, have the joy and privilege of getting to preach from time to time. And this morning, uh, we're taking a break from the Psalms to do a sermon on Heidelberg Catechism, question number one. Because it has been this summer, uh, a couple months now, in our regular confessions of faith we've been saying together, and I hope that we would continue doing that for now into eternity. And I want us to have a grasp of, of why this particular you know, question, why are we saying this every month? What does it mean? And so I just hope that far more meaning comes to us today for this, this question, so that in the months to come, in the years to come as we recite it together, uh, you have far more things to hold on to as we recite it, and you see that it's not just, it's just, it's not just lip service. We're not just doing these confessions of faith uh, to try to fill up time in the service, or because that's what we've always done, but because they really are truly good for us as a body and good for us individually and for our soul. So if you would, please pray with me, and then we'll dive right in. Heavenly Father, thankful for the faithfulness of brothers and sisters hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, who carried the torch for their lifetime, and they passed on the teachings of Christ and the apostles to faithful men who could teach others also. We stand in a long line, a long tradition of faithful men and women who passed on the faith to us. We just express our gratefulness that through the ages, the gates of hell have not prevailed against your church, that the truth of your gospel has gone out into all the world, that the number, on Christians, number of Christians on the planet have continually increased as your kingdom expands and grows like a bit of yeast in dough or a mustard seed into a great tree. And we pray that your gospel would go forth this morning in all the churches in Rapid City and especially here at Redeeming Grace to continue to draw people to yourself and show them the beauty and the truths of your gospel which this catechism question contains for us today. So help me to explain this rightly and help us to glory in it to the delight of our own souls, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. So the year was 18, sorry, 1563, 1563, all right, nearly 500 years ago. And this is 45 years, roughly, after Martin Luther famously posted the 95 Theses on the door of Wittenberg Cathedral, uh, protesting, that's where we get the word Protestant from, protesting against some of the errors and abuses of the Catholic Church in his day. And what he started as what he hoped would just simply be a reform movement within the Catholic Church quickly became its own independent sect of Christianity, which we call Protestantism today. And many of the countries uh, in Northern Europe, England, Scandinavia, Germany, 
Switzerland, found themselves, their princes, their countries, leaving the authority of the Catholic Church in order to establish their own churches free from what they saw was, was some tyranny there uh, and, and clear error. But it also sparked tons of war. So there was a, a war known as a 30 Years' War, where some people estimate as many as 50% of the German population was killed. This is nuts. Over 30 years, imagine half, your, half of your people in your village dying or in your, your province from warfare, from the famines that resulted, from disease. Just a really, really terrible time. And so, come 1563, Prince Elector Frederick III of the Palatinate, it was a, a, a kingdom within the Holy Roman Empire. This is before Germany was its own country. And he wanted to ensure unity of belief amongst his people to prevent future warfare and to strengthen the church and to ensure that for generations people were clinging to these new truths which had been uh, propounded by Martin Luther and many reformers since then. And so he commissioned some men in the, the, the local university at Heidelberg. Heidelberg is a city. He and it had a university, Heidelberg, the University of Heidelberg. It's still there today. He commissioned some men, particularly under the leadership of a man named as Zacharias or Sinus, to craft a catechism with the goal of providing instruction for young people, a tool for preachers to preach from, and a standard, again, is of, of unity amongst his churches a form of confessional unity. And so he, Zacharias Ursinus, and some other scholars at the university, they put together the Heidelberg Catechism, which was published in 1863. It received some modifications uh, in the years that followed, but the form we have it today is largely rooted in that, sorry, 1563. And he divided it into 52 sections. So if you have a copy of it, this looks like this. All right, this is actually has two other documents in it, but it has 42 sections, sorry, 52 sections, right, for one week of the year. Each week of the year has its own section. That's why the handout you have says Lord's Day 1 on it. So the first Lord's Day of the year, you would start with this catechism question. And the pastor, the other teachers in the church would be instructing both adults and young people in these truths. And you go through a whole year, and then you can start over again. And you're continually just letting the essential truths of Christianity seep into your bones, become part of your regular language and your preaching, your households. And so there's 52 sections. There's one or two questions in each week. And as you go through it, you basically learn the entire scope of Christian doctrine. We have books today called Systematic Theologies. They're usually like this thick, right? And they're scholars writing pages and pages and pages about uh, who is Christ? What does it mean that he's fully God, fully man? What is the Trinity? What is the church? What is baptism? What is Lord's Supper, right? Well, the catechism does exactly that. It's just in a much more condensed form. So why a catechism? It, again, teaches and promotes the essentials of Christian doctrine and promotes unity amongst the churches that use it. It also, it cites scripture as its final authority. So one of the, the rallying cries of the Reformation was, right, sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the highest authority. Tradition is an authority. Your pastors are an authority. Uh, human reason is a kind of authority. But the highest authority over all of those is Scripture itself. That if there's any debate between these other authorities, Scripture comes in and gets the final say. And so the Catechism isn't trying to replace Scripture. You'll see on the back of your handout a whole bunch of Scripture reference, not even all of them for this first question. 
The catechism is trying to distill truths of Scripture, and then it even cites all of them that it's drawing from so that you can go do the research and, and see exactly where these writers, these authors, were getting these ideas from. See that it really is from the text of Scripture that these truths are coming to us. So far from undermining the authority of Scripture, it is exalting the authority of Scripture and pointing us to the Scriptures, which is what we're going to do today. Even though, uh, just for the sake of efficiency, we'll be using this as our reference rather than flipping around in our Bibles quite a bit. Here's the other reason to use a catechism, okay? Is that it teaches you how to answer questions well, and it answers them in a way that's beautiful or actually devotional. You'll see today, it's not mere knowledge. It's not just the facts. It's not just the A, B, C, D answer to the test. It is beautifully written in a way to minister to your own soul. And it's teaching you how to answer well. So the question, you can see at the top of your page, the question for the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 1, is this. What is your only comfort in life and death? What is your only comfort in life and death? Now, if any of us were to give an answer to that, hopefully most of us would maybe just simply say, Jesus, he's my only hope. He's my only comfort. And that's true, but it's, it's insufficient in that it doesn't explain, well, what about Jesus? Why Jesus? How can he be your hope? How can he be my hope? So the catechism teaches you to answer fully in a way that actually ex- fully answers the question. And you're going to see that today. All right? So take a look here at Heidelberg Catechism question number one with me. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to just go line by line. And you'll see little superscript numbers through here, like it would be marking Bible verses. And those are references to the scriptures below. That if you have a copy of the catechism, it has these scripture references. It's telling you, here's where we got these ideas. And then on the back, I have reproduced the scripture references we're going to look at. We're not going to look at all of them. So that you can just be flipping back and forth like this today. We're not just going to be flying all over your Bible or going through like 20 different slides. Just one tool right here. And then you can take this home and continue to reference it yourselves. So that's what those little numbers mean. Here's the question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer. That I'm not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. One final note, I did leave a large margin here. If you want to take notes, write all over this, I encourage you to interact with us physically if that's something that helps you follow along to remember things and whatnot. This can be a useful note guide too. So the question, I want to meditate on the question a little bit first because I think if we stop and think about it, it's a little curious. What is your only comfort in life and death? That word comfort, we typically use that to mean, like we think of comfort foods or a comfortable bed or a comfortable home with air conditioning or heating during the winter, right? But it has a much more deeper uh, meaning. Think of comfort to your own soul, right? Not physical comfort, things that are pleasurable, but think of spiritual comfort, things that are satisfying, things that can get you through tough times, 
things that you can use when you need ballast in your boat when the storm waves are crashing against you. No matter what happens, what is your only comfort? What is your only hope in life and in death? Kids, I want you to think about this. This is the question. No matter what, in life or in death, no matter what, what's your only comfort? Kids, you're going to fail a test, right? You're going to be embarrassed at school, perhaps. You won't make the team. You'll be mistreated. Your friends will gossip about you or betray you even. Your life is only going to get harder from here on out. Sorry. You're going to need comfort. This sermon is incredibly relevant to you. Adults. Kids, you'll become an adult someday, Lord willing. And all of us adults in the room, our, response, our responsibilities will continue to grow throughout our life while our physical energy fades. What a terrible tension <laughs> to be growing old and watching your body decay, perhaps your mind even, while your own responsibilities are enhanced. By 30, God will afflict you with some sort of physical ailment that you'll have to nurse the rest of your life as a reminder that you'll someday die and it will make you a better person. You'll watch your grandparents and then eventually your parents, perhaps even your own spouse, die as well. Your kids may struggle against you. Your career isn't going to pan out. The stock market may crash and wipe out that retirement you're relying on. Your friends are going to move away. Your church might fall apart. If your life isn't that hard now, it will be. If life is already hard for you, it's probably only going to get worse in terms of your physical circumstances. Life is almost essentially at its, at its root suffering, unfortunately. Just hard truths to hear. And so that's why this catechism question is so pertinent to everyone in this room today. Job says, we just read through the book of Job this spring, if you recall, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly up. As sure as sparks go up, you've got trouble in store for you. So what is your only comfort in life and in death? It can't be, I hope things get better, because they probably won't. It can't be, I hope someone else will come fix this, because quite frankly, in many circumstances, they can't. Your hope can't be, I hope they'll forgive me for what I did, because many perhaps won't. Your hope can't be, I hope I have the wisdom to sort this whole thing out. You probably don't. Your hope can't be, I'm just going to grip my teeth, hang on, and make it through this. Eventually, you will tire and give up. What is your only hope, your only comfort in life and in death? And then when you die, right? raise your hand if you're going to die someday. What's your only comfort? Are you going to just become worm food? The lights turn out, we put you in the ground, and that's it? What's your only comfort, your only hope? On the other side of that, for your own soul, what is your only comfort, life and death? What's your only hope that you will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, rather than, away from me, I never knew you? What's our only hope, ladies and gentlemen? This is the answer. You can turn your attention to your catechism. That I am not my own. Stop. What a curious answer. What's your only hope? In essence, this catechism question answer is that I'm not my own. 
that I'm not my own. I don't belong to myself. But I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the answer. What is your only hope? What's the only thing you can hang on to in life struggles and when facing death? The answer, I think, is actually quite surprising. Your only hope is that you can belong to someone else. And we're going to unpack what that means now. First, you were purchased. You can flip over and look at 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Paul writes, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You were purchased. You also have a Lord. Look at Romans 14, 7 to 9. None of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord, Lord both of the dead and of the living. And then finally, it cites Titus 2.14. You were purchased, you have a Lord, and the price was your Lord's own blood. Listen to this. Who, Jesus, he gave himself for us to redeem, buy us back from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Your only comfort in life and in death is that you've been bought by a faithful Lord who gave his own life to redeem yours from the pit. Just as a father has responsibility for the mess that his family might be in, or a company commander in the army, may have, he's responsible for leading his troops out of a dangerous situation. As Moses was responsible for leading the people out of Israel, as David was responsible for the kingdom of Israel, as our president is responsible for what happens in the nation, the buck stops here. So Christ is responsible for the people he has purchased. He is their king. He is their covenant head. He is their Lord. His responsibility is to sort your life out when chaos and terror threaten to overwhelm you. You're not responsible for that. He bought you with his own blood. He owns you now. And so no matter what happens in your life or as you're facing death, it's his responsibility to see you through the other side of it. And as we're going to read in the next section, he is so trustworthy to trust himself with that. We're going to read the whole next section now. You can see the second paragraph. It's going to sound a lot like the Lord's benefits from Psalm 103, which we preached on just a few weeks ago. So we're going to read the whole thing and then take it one step at a time. Who is this faithful Savior? What has he done to make you his own? Listen to this now. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation taking it one at a time. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. Notice one of the scripture references for that is 1 John 1, 7 to 9. You'll see that on the back of your handout. Let me read that for you. John writes, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then verse 2 of the next chapter, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He has fully paid for all our sins with His precious blood. That is how He purchased us. That is what gives Him the right to own us as Lord and to call us His people is that he bought us from slavery to sin and made us his own. He has every right to us because he redeemed our life from the pit. It goes on. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil, not only of sin, but of Satan himself. Scripture reference on the back, Hebrews 2, 14 to 15 says this. Since therefore the children, that's you and me, share in flesh and blood, He, Jesus, himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Christ himself entered into our condition. As Aaron Udick preached last week, he came down into the dust and ashes with us and got his hands bloody to redeem us from our own mistakes, but also from the tyranny of the devil. As that great Reformed theologian Bob Dylan once said, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. The great irony of our era, the modern era, is that we idolize autonomy, self-law, self-rule, being our own person, living authentically, being having no master, being subject to no one. And because modern freedom means actually freedom to sin, it means freedom to be tyrannized by the devil. So in our pursuit as modern people for freedom, for autonomy, autonomy, to have no one we're accountable to, we actually descend even deeper into slavery. It isn't true liberty, which is the freedom to fulfill our duties in love, to be bought by Christ and belong to him, is to be truly free. And this passage here in Hebrews tells us that he took on flesh and died for us to destroy our old master, the devil, to destroy his works and deliver, think of Moses delivering his people out of Egypt, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Fear of death without any hope other than what I can figure out is a lot of fear because really quickly I, feel, I figure out I'm not all that great. I'm pretty poor at navigating my own life. If I'm the captain of my fate, the master of my soul, I'll make a shipwreck of my life. And so if I've got to figure it out, I live in constant fear and lifelong slavery as I approach death. But because Christ has crushed our old master and delivered us into true liberty, we no longer have to fear or to live as slaves. The next section. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. You see how beautiful this answer is? It's not just giving us the facts. It's ministering to our souls in such a delightful way. It's quoting word for word in some instances, scriptures we're about to read. And it's lifting them up to our eyes. And as we were to memorize this catechism question, it's reminding us again 
that no matter what you're experiencing right now, it could be turmoil in your career, turmoil in your finances, turmoil in your own soul, turmoil in your family, the turmoil of our city, our state, our country, no matter what, not a hair can fall from your head without the will of your Father in heaven. Listen to these passages. They're on the back of your sheet again. John 10, 27 to 30. Jesus speaking, My sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. No one, not even yourself, can snatch you out of the Father's hand. If you belong to the chief shepherd, you are his sheep, he will see you home to the beautiful fields of the heavenly Canaan. Matthew 10, 29 to 31. Jesus speaking again. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? They're, they're pretty worthless. Yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. If God so orchestrates the world and exercises his sovereignty in full wisdom and knowledge of everything that's going on, every molecule in the universe, so that not even a sparrow can die without it being the Lord's will, and how much more valuable are you than sparrows, how much more is God orchestrating your own life and death so that your only hope, your only comfort is that God himself is in control and that everything you face now, have faced in the past, will face in the future, was given to you directly from his hand, and he knew exactly how he would lead you through it. Romans 8.28 is the last scripture reference here for this section. Paul writes, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are so called according to his purpose. But here's the logic of all of this. You're more value than sparrows. How valuable? He bought you with the precious blood of his own son. Therefore, he's not going to give you up. He's not going to let you go. He loves you. He cherishes you. You're a people for his own possession. Think of your most prized possession, your most valuable object in your life or person in your life. How much you would be willing to do to hold on to that person. And God loves you, Christian, even more than that, in a more perfect way than that. And... He's also the sovereign God of the entire cosmos, the Lord of all history, with all the wisdom and strength to fulfill his plans for you perfectly without challenge. Therefore, you can be certain that if you truly belong to him, if he really has bought you with his own blood, you can be certain that any evil that comes your way will not destroy you. It might kill you, but you have hope in death. It will not destroy you. It will not overwhelm your soul. That every trial that comes your way will actually move you closer to Christ and your salvation. The catechism reads, all things must work together for my salvation. That annoying coworker, the market downturn, the thing your friend said to you that really, really wounded you. Those things are driving you closer to your own salvation because you have a shepherd who oversees all things. All things must work together for your salvation if you are in Christ. What a joy. This eternal truth will allow you to laugh in the face of chaos and even death. 
because it frees you from lifelong fear and slavery. And now here's how the catechism ends. Look at the final section here. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life. Here's the scripture reference, Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Father bought us with Christ's blood, gave us to his Son, sealed us with his Holy Spirit as a deposit, as a guarantee of our future salvation, our inheritance in the new heavens and new earth. In the age to come, God has guaranteed it. Nothing can take it away from us. Nothing can snatch us out of his hand. And hopefully now you see as we finish the the Trinitarian scope of this question as well. Not only is it exalting in Christ's work, but also the Father's work to plan your salvation and the Spirit's work to apply it and seal you. This is beautiful. The whole gospel message is contained in this question. It's fruit for our souls to nourish us, and it is exalting in our Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here's how it ends. He makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. He makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. When we preached through James, we pointed out a passage, some tension between the nature of faith and works, and how true faith is what saves us, but true faith is never absent of good works. And here's why. I want you to think of your transition from lifelong slavery and fear to the tyranny of the devil and the shipwreck of your own life to having been bought by a beautiful and gracious slave master, one who came and purchased you when you had nothing to commend yourself of. Your master shed his own blood to buy you and bring you into his household. He washed you clean through the waters of baptism and seats you at his own dinner table in the Lord's Supper. Think of how low you were and how high he has exalted you if you are in Christ. Why would you not be willing to do anything for this master? How could you not, with joy, accept any command from his mouth? That is the kind of willingness, wholeheartedly willing to live for him as the catechism ends. And so I want to end now with a few exhortations for us, some really practical handholds for what the heck this Heidelberg Catechism means for us in our congregation, for our families. Circle back again one last time to the question, what is your only comfort in life and in death that you're not your own? When we recite this corporately month to month, that's what we're saying. All these truths we just laid out, all these scriptures that it points us to, We're affirming those truths. We're saying, my only hope is I'm not my own. I have a master, I have a shepherd, I have a Lord watching over me and guiding all history so that I make it to the finish line and receive my guaranteed inheritance. That's my only hope, that I'm not my own. I belong to another. Not only is this a true answer based in Scripture, but again, it's a beautiful answer. Answer for our own souls. And so to that end, it's worth memorizing. 
We need true things in here and we need beautiful things in here to get us through. And so the, the work of memorizing things as a culture has really faded away. Everything's just a touch of a button away. I can pull up the Heidelberg Catechism on my phone at any time. But I want you to think of the man of Psalm 1. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffer, but whose delight is on the law of the Lord, the teaching of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. That man doesn't have a copy of the scriptures that he's whipping out. Day and night, when he lays his head on his pillow, when he goes to work, when he walks along the way with his children, the scriptures are in here. That man's roots are sunk deep. He's not reaching over and grabbing his little serving of water every day. His roots are constantly seeking into the water of God's teaching, God's word, God's hope. And so when we memorize things, we, we really truly ingest them into our souls. They don't just flitter across our brains for a moment and then are gone. And so for our own benefit, we should be memorizing scripture, we should be memorizing the catechism for a couple other reasons as well, which I'll get to in just a moment. So how to use the catechism? First of all, grab a copy and start memorizing actually really straightforward. You can buy it for like four bucks on Amazon. You can download a PDF of it anywhere. It's open source because it's so old. You can get it for free on your Kindle. You can get a copy like this that also comes with the Belgic Confession and the Canons of Dort. All right, there's also a more modern catechism that you could use. This is the New City Catechism. And from time to time, we have some sitting out back there. But this is based on the Heidelberg, with some updated language, it has all the scripture references still, 52 days, and parents, kids, it has highlighted section for a shorter version that your younger kids can work on and the full version for adults. So these are excellent tools, excellent tools for us to disciple ourselves and to disciple others. Minister to your own soul, minister to the souls of others, and witness to those who belong to Satan still. Right? If you have these truths sunk down into your bones, if you need to express the truth of the gospel, right? how many opportunities do you have to witness to your hope, your only comfort in life and death? If somebody asks you, Peter says, be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within you. What is your only hope? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You don't have to think. You don't even have to think. Just instinctually, this comes welling up out of you as you witness to others or minister to a brother or sister in Christ who's struggling. Hey, remember, you're not your own. Remember what your Savior has done for you. You can use this to minister to each other. An exhortation to, to husbands and fathers. The book of Ephesians says fathers were res- husbands are responsible for loving their wives like Christ loved the church, who's washing her clean through the word. So as we lead our families in worship, it later says, Husband, fathers, lead, raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. How are you doing that? Hopefully, they're part of the life of the church. But also, how are you doing that at home? How are you taking responsibility for the discipleship of your own children? We have no excuse when we have tools like this. The basics of the Christian faith, updated modern language, scripture references. There's an entire video curriculum 
and songs to help you memorize these that go along with this. If you don't know where to start, start here. You don't have to use this forever. You could use it for a time, set it aside, go to something else. But if you struggle, fathers and husbands, with how to lead your family in worship, how to lead your family, how to care for your wife, how to care for the souls of your children as you form discipleship practices in your home, turn to the catechism. That was its original intent, was to equip fathers to disciple their kids in the home. And so pick one of these up. Order this online. You can get a version of this that doesn't have any of the extras. It's only like this big. It's like $2 on Amazon, right? There's no excuse now. Use the catechism to disciple ourselves and our family. Also, corporate Sunday school for adults and children. We could, as a body, organize an entire calendar year, 52 weeks, of corporate discipleship in Sunday school for adults and kids at all ages as we work together to learn this and bring these truths into our bones. Now we have the same language. We're speaking to each other using the same categories, same concepts, same language as we pursue Christ to one another. And then finally, delight in it as part of our Sunday liturgy. Again, we're not just getting up reciting truths, but truths that are beautiful. And so as we corporately stand month to month and recite Heidelberg Catechism question one, let these truths, let these other scriptures sound in your head as you not just, don't just recite the catechism question, but exult in it, glory in it as you read it aloud because your only hope in life and death is that you're not your own. So I'd ask us to do that now, actually. If you'll stand up with your help, we're just gonna end by reciting this together. We're gonna go slow, but really appropriate these truths for your own soul. If you're not in Christ, if you're not a believer, if you can't say this of your own self, I want you to think about why not? Why could this not be your hope today? And you're welcome to come talk to me, talk to any of the elders about that afterwards. Please recite this to me. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Let me take a seat. Let me pray for us. Father, please, please sink these truths deep into our bones. Give us a beautiful vision of your Son, our faithful Savior, who has done this for us, who has liberated us from the tyranny of sin and Satan in lifelong slavery and has welcomed us into a new family, become all our hope in life and death, and so orchestrates our lives, not a hair can fall from our head, and all things, whether good or bad, all things must work together for our good. Thank you for so sure a hope. Thank you for so sweet a hope. Please help us to exult in our Savior now in this final song. I ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.